Section 21 of France in the 19th Century. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. France in the 19th Century by Elizabeth Latimer. Chapter 13. The Siege of Paris. Part 1. Though the surrender of the emperor and his army at Sedan took place on September 2, nothing whatever was known of it by the Parisian public until the evening of September 4, when a reporter arrived at the office of the Gaulois with a Belgian newspaper in his pocket. The Gaulois dared not be the first cheat to publish the news of such a disaster. But dispatches had already reached the government, and by degrees rumors of what had happened crept through the streets of the capital. No one knew any details of the calamity, but every one soon understood that something terrible had occurred. The Legislative Assembly held a midnight session, but nothing was determined on until the morning, when the Empire was voted out and a Republic voted in. It was a beautiful Sunday morning. Every Parisian was in the street, and, wonderful to say, all faces seemed to express satisfaction. The loss of an army, the surrender of the Emperor, the national disgrace, the prospect of a siege, the advance of the Prussians, were things apparently forgotten. Paris was charmed to have got rid of so unlucky a ruler, the emperor for whom more than seven millions of Frenchmen had passed a vote of confidence a few months before. He seemed to have no longer a single friend, or rather he had one. In the assembly an elderly deputy stood up in his place and boldly said that he had taken an oath to be faithful to the emperor Napoleon, and did not think himself absolved from it by his misfortunes. It was almost in a moment, almost without a breath of opposition, that on the morning of September 5, 1870, the empire was voted at an end and a republic put in its place. The duty of governing was at once confided to seven men, called the Committee of Defense. Of these, Arago, Crémieux, and Gamier-Pagès had been members of the Provisional Government in 1848, while Léon Gambetta, Jules Favre, Jules Ferry, and Jules Simon afterwards distinguished themselves. Rochefort, the insurrectionist, made but one step from prison to the council board, and was admitted among the new rulers but the two chief men in the Committee of Defence were Jules Favre and Gambetta. Gambetta, who before that time had been little known, was from the south of France and of Italian origin. He was a man full of enthusiasm, vehement, irascible, and impulsive. The day came when these qualities, tempered and refined, did good service to France, when he also proved himself one of those great men in history who are capable of supreme self-sacrifice. At present he was untried. Jules Favre was respected for his unstained reputation and perfect integrity, his disinterestedness and civic virtues, as also for his fluency of speech. In person he was a small, thin man, with a head that was said to resemble the popular portraits of General Jackson. General Jules Trochu, who was confirmed as military commander of Paris, had written a book previous to the war regarding the inefficiency of the French army. He had been therefore no favorite with the emperor. His chief defect, it was said, was that he talked so well that he was fond of talking, and too readily admitted many to his confidence. The Council of Regency had in the night melted away. A mob was surging round the Tuileries. Where had the Empress Regent fled? When disasters had followed fast upon one another, the Empress had in her bewilderment found it hard to realize that the end of the Empire was at hand. Bazaine was the man whom she relied on. She had no great liking for Marshal McMahon and she does not appear to have been conscious that all was lost till, on the night of September 4, she found M. Conti, the Emperor's secretary, busy destroying his private papers. To burn them was impossible, they were torn into small bits and put in a bathtub, then hot water was poured over them, which reduced them to pulp. 
Vast quantities, however, remained undestroyed, some of them compromising to their writers. When the truth of the situation broke upon the Empress, she was very much frightened. Her dread was that she might be torn in pieces by a mob that would invade the Tuileries. In a fortnight her fair face had become haggard, and white streaks showed themselves in her beautiful hair. It is safest in such cases to trust foreigners rather than subjects. Two foreigners occupied themselves with plans for the Empress's personal safety. The first idea was that if flight became inevitable, she should take refuge with the sisters of the Sacré-Cœur, in their convent in the Rue Picpus, and arrangements had been made for this contingency. The life of the Empress was strange and piteous during her last days upon the throne. She was up every morning by seven, and heard mass. Her dress was black cashmere, with a white linen collar and cuffs. All day she was the victim of every person who claimed an audience, all talking, protesting, gesticulating, and generally begging. The day the false rumour had arrived that the Prussians had been defeated at the quarries of Jaumont, she flew down to the guard-room, where the soldiers off-duty were lounging on their beds, waving the telegram over her head. The news of the capitulation at Sedan and of the decree deposing the Emperor roused the Parisian populace. By one o'clock on September 5 the mob began to threaten the Tuileries. Then the Italian ambassador, Signor Nigra, and the Austrian ambassador, Prince Richard Metternich, insisted that the Empress must seek a place of safety. As it was impossible to reach the street from the Tuileries, they made their way through the long galleries of the Louvre, and gained the entrance opposite the parish church of Saint-Germain-l'Auxerrois. The street was blocked with people uttering cries against the Emperor. A gamin recognized the fugitives and shouted, quote, "'Here comes the Empress!' De Nigra gave him a kick and asked him how he dared to cry, "'Vive l'Empereur!' At this the crowd turned upon the boy, and in the confusion the Empress and her lady-in-waiting were put into a cab, driven, it is said, by Gamble, the Emperor's faithful English coachman. If this were so, the Empress did not recognize him, for after proceeding a little way, she and Madame Le Breton, her companion, finding that they had but three francs between them, and dreading an altercation with the cabman if this were not enough to pay their fare, got out and proceeded on foot to the house of the American dentist, Dr. Thomas Evans. There they had to wait till admitted to his operating-room. The doctor's amazement when he saw them was great. He had not been aware of what was passing at the Tuileries, but he took his hat and went out to collect information. Soon he returned to tell the Empress that she had not escaped a moment too soon. His wife was at Deauville, a fashionable watering-place in Normandie. The doctor placed her wardrobe at the disposal of the Empress, who had saved nothing of her own but a few jewels. It is said she owned three hundred dresses, and her collection of fans, laces, etc., was probably unique. Her own servants had begun to pillage her wardrobe before she left the Tuileries. It is said that she would have gone forth on horseback and have put herself at the head of the troops, but that no riding habit had been left her, except a gay green and gold hunting dress worn by her at Fontainebleau. That morning no servant in the Tuileries could be found to bring her breakfast to her chamber. The next day Dr. Evans, in his own carriage, took her safely out of Paris, in the character of a lady of unsound mind, whom he and Madame Le Breton were conveying to friends in the country. Two days later they reached Deauville after several narrow escapes, the Empress on one occasion having nearly betrayed herself by an effort to stop a man who was cruelly beating his horse. There were two English yachts lying at Deauville. On board of one of these Dr. Evans went. It belonged to Sir John Bourgoyne, grandson of the General Bourgoyne who surrendered at Saratoga. Sir John, with his wife, was on a pleasure cruise. His yacht, the Gazelle, was very small, only forty-five tons burden, and carried a crew of six men. 
as soon as Sir John Burgoyne had satisfied himself that it was really the Empress who was thus thrown on his protection, he placed himself and his yacht at her disposal, insisting, however, that she must not come on board till nearly midnight, when he would meet her on the quay. It was fortunate that he made this arrangement, for after dark a police agent and a Russian spy came on board and searched every corner of the little vessel. When at last they departed, Sir John went on to the quay, and shortly afterwards met two ladies, and a gentleman who carried a handbag. One of the ladies stepped up to him and said, quote, "'I believe you are the English gentleman who will take me to England. I am the Empress.' She then burst into tears. On reaching the yacht, her first eager demand was for newspapers. Happily, Lady Bourgogne could tell her that the Prince Imperial was safe in England. From the English papers she also learned particulars of the disaster at Sedan, of the proclamation of the Republic in the corps législatif at Paris, and of the treatment of the Emperor. It was an anxious time for all on board the Gazelle, for the tide would not serve to leave the harbour till seven o'clock the next morning, and Deauville was wildly riotous all night. At last they worked out of the harbour and were at sea, but a tempest was raging in the channel, and so violent was it that at half-past one the next morning the great English ironclad captain, commanded by Sir Hugh Bourgoyne, Sir John's cousin, went down with all on board, not far from where the little gazelle was battling with the gale. The gazelle had a terrible passage, shipping tremendous seas. She danced and rolled like a cork, but the ladies were brave and were encouraged by Lady Bourgogne's composure. Quote, there was no affectation of courage in Lady Bourgogne, said the Empress afterwards. She simply acted as if nothing were the matter. End quote. After about eighteen hours of this stormy passage, the gazelle was safe at anchor off Ride, in the Isle of Wight. The Empress was anxious that no one should know she was in England but Sir John told her it was his duty to inform the Foreign Office immediately. An answer was at once returned by Lord Granville, assuring the Empress of welcome and protection, but he added in a postscript to Sir John, quote, "'Don't you think you may have been imposed upon?' The fact was that the Foreign Office had already received news of the escape of the Empress by way of Ostend, under the charge of two English gentlemen, who had been themselves deceived. The ladies they had assisted to leave Paris were Princess Clotilde and an attendant." After the Emperor's release from Wilhelmshöhe, he received Sir John Bourgogne at Chislehurst, and thanked him, with tears in his eyes, for his care of the Empress, adding that no sailors but the English could have got across the Channel on such a night in so small a craft. After peace had been signed between Prussia and France, the Emperor landed at Dover, where he was touched by the kindly and respectful reception he met with from the English people. The next day he was visited by Lord Malmesbury, an old friend in the days of his youth, before he entered on his life of adventure. Lord Malmesbury says, quote, He came into the room alone to meet me, with that remarkable smile that could light up his dark countenance. I confess I never was more moved. His quiet and calm dignity, and absence of all nervousness or irritability, were grand examples of moral courage. All the past rushed to my memory. He must have seen what I felt, for he said, À la guerre comme à la guerre. It is very good of you to come to see me. In a quiet, natural way he then praised the kindness of the Germans at Wilhelmshöhe, nor did a single plaint escape him during our conversation. He said he had been deceived as to the force and preparation of his armies, but without mentioning names, nor did he abuse anybody, till I mentioned Trochu, who had abandoned the Empress, whom he had sworn to defend. During half an hour he conversed with me, as in the best days of his life, with dignity and resignation, but when I saw him again he was much more depressed. He was grieving at the destruction of Paris, and at the anarchy prevailing over France, far more than he had done over his own misfortunes. 
that the communists should have committed such horrors in the presence of their enemies the prussians seemed to him the very acme of humiliation and national infamy End quote. on january ninth eighteen seventy three he died at chislehurst in the presence of the empress who never left him released from the storms of a fitful existence and from intense physical suffering let us return now to paris and the committee of defence its new republican government though the people of paris in the excitement consequent on the proclamation of a republic seemed to have forgotten the prussians the prospect of their speedy arrival stared the government in the face it was a government not of france but of paris france had had no voice in making this new republic nor was it at all likely that it would be popular in the provinces but meanwhile work of every kind was pressing on its hands the fortifications of paris were unmanned and indeed were not even completed and there were hardly any soldiers in the capital the first thing to be done was to bring provisions into the city cattle grain salt hay preserved meats in short everything edible that could be imagined poured in so long as the railroads remained open all public buildings became storehouses but affairs were conducted with such recklessness and disorder that the livestock suffered terribly and half the hay was wasted as to troops general vinoy arrived with twenty thousand soldiers who had been stationed between belgium and sedan they had never fought the prussians but were impatient of discipline and utterly demoralized stragglers and fugitives from sedan came in also but these were still less to be depended on the national guard had never enjoyed the favor of the emperor and had been suffered to fall to pieces it was now reorganized and armed as well as the government was able there was a body of mobile who had been sent away from the army by marshal mcmahon because they were so insubordinate that he did not know what to do with them ninety thousand mobile came up from the provinces before the gates of paris closed excellent material for soldiers but wholly uninstructed and finally about ten thousand sailors arrived from brest who were kept in strict line by their officers and were the most reliable part garrison the male population of paris remained in the city almost to a man except those known to the police as thieves or ex-convicts who were all sent away women and children also were removed if their husbands and fathers could afford places of safety around the city was a wall twelve yards high forming a polygonal enclosure at each corner of the polygon was a bastion in which were stationed the big guns the wall connecting the bastions is called a curtain the bastions protected the curtains and were themselves protected by sixteen detached forts built on all the eminences around paris the most celebrated of these forts lies to the west of paris between it and versailles and is called fort valerien it is erected on a steep hill long called mont calvaire from which is a magnificent view of the city this stony hill for several centuries used to be ascended by pilgrims on their knees the mount where once stood an altar of the druids became a consecrated place before the revolution louis philippe in eighteen forty one had planned the fortifications of paris but in his time they had been only partially constructed even in eighteen seventy as i have said they were not complete when the siege became imminent the first thing to be done was to put them in good order but for a week the workingmen in paris were so intoxicated with the idea of having a republic that they could not be made to do steady work upon anything it was also considered necessary to cut down all trees and to destroy all villages between the forts and the walls of the city so that they might afford no shelter to the prussians the poor inhabitants of these villages flocked into paris bringing with them carts piled with their household goods their wives and children's peeping out aghast between the chairs and beds the beautiful trees in the bois de boulogne were cut down 
the deer and the swans and other wild fowl on the lakes long the pets of the parisian holiday-makers were shot by parties of mobiles sent out for that purpose no military man believed that paris defended by uncompleted fortifications could withstand a direct attack from the prussians no one dreamed of a blockade for it was thought that it would take a million and a quarter of men to invest the city and the prussians were known not to have that number for the purpose the idea was that the enemy would choose some point would attack it with all his forces would lose probably thirty thousand men and would take the city but bismarck and king william and von moltke had no idea of losing thirty thousand men they were certain that there would be risings and disturbances in paris they believed that their forces might even be called in to save respectable parisians from the outrages of the reds they knew that rural france having little love for paris or the republic was not likely to accept the government formed without its own consent nor march to the assistance of the capital even should the provincial population bestir itself the troops it could send would be only raw levies and there was no great leader to animate or to direct popular enthusiasm it was quite true that the respectable classes in paris had as much to fear from the reds as from the prussians the mob of paris was wild for a commune it is not always known what is meant by a commune and i may be pardoned if i pause to define it here in feudal times cities all over europe won for themselves charters by these charters they acquired the right to govern themselves that is the burghers elected their own mayor and their councillor aldermen and this body governing the community was called the commune when the feudal system fell in france and all power was centralized in the king city governments were established by royal edict only paris for instance was governed by the prefect of the seine he had under him the maire of twenty arrondissements and thus it was in every french city all public offices in france were in the gift of the throne to americans who have mayors and city councils in every city municipal taxation municipal elections and municipal laws a commune appears the best mode of city government but if we can imagine one of our large cities possessing the same power over the united states that paris wields over france we shall take a different view of the matter paris governed by a commune that commune being elected by a mob and aspiring to give laws to france might well indeed have alarmed all frenchmen we may judge of its feeling towards the provinces from the indignation expressed by parisian communists when during the commune lyon and some other cities talked of setting up communes of their own in olden times in france italy and germany as in great britain at the present day it was not the mob but the burghers whose interests depended upon the prosperity of their city who voted in municipal elections paris had established universal suffrage and the restless men of belleville the white blues were liable in any time of excitement to be joined by roughs from other cities and by all working men out of employment these apprehensions of the respectable citizens of paris were horribly realized in eighteen seventy one the new republic meantime was not red not communistic not socialistic but republican during the revolution of eighteen forty eight there had been little intoxication in paris but in the twenty-two years that followed the french had learned to drink absinthe and to frequent such places as la Soumoire. all accounts speak of the drunkenness in france during the franco-prussian war meantime during the two weeks that preceded the arrival of the prussians the streets of paris were crowded with men in every variety of uniform francs-tireurs in their opera comique costume cuirassiers artillerymen lancers regulars national guards and mobiles carriages were mixed up with heavy wagons loaded sometimes with worthless household goods sometimes with supplies peasants carts were seen in the midst of frightened flocks of sheep driven by bewildered shepherds 
everybody was in someone's way. All was confusion, excitement, and exhilaration. Till September 19 the railways continued to run. Then the fifty-one gates of Paris were closed, the railroad entrances were walled up, and the following notice appeared upon the walls. Quote, Citizens, the last lines which connected Paris with France and Europe were cut yesterday evening. Paris is left to herself. She has now only her own courage and her own resources to rely on. Europe, which has received so much enlightenment from this great city, and has always felt a certain jealousy of her glory, now abandons her. But Paris, we are persuaded, will prove that she has not ceased to be the most solid rampart of French independence. To hold out was the determination of all classes. But the very next day the Reds put forth a manifesto demanding a commune, the dismissal of the police, the sequestration of the property of all rich or influential men, and a public declaration that the King of Prussia would not be treated with so long as his armies occupied one foot of French soil. Nothing less than these things, said the document, will satisfy the people. Here we see the usual assumption of the Paris communists that they are the people. They have always assumed that thirty-two millions of Frenchmen outside the walls of Paris counted for nothing. As the Prussian armies passed to the southward of Paris to take possession of Versailles, an attack, authorized by General Trochu and by General Ducrot, who had escaped from Sedan, was made upon the German columns. The Zouaves, who had come back to Paris under General Linois, demoralized by the disasters of their comrades, were the first to break and run. The poor little mobiles stood firm and did their duty. The official report said, quote, Some of our soldiers took to flight with regrettable haste, end quote, a phrase which became a great joke among the Parisians. That night the Reds breathed fire and fury against the government, quote, and the respectable part of Paris, says M. de Sarcy, the great dramatic critic, saw themselves between two dangers. It would be hard to say which of them they dreaded most. They hated the Prussians very much, but they feared the men of Belleville more. End quote. Meantime, Jules Favre, who had been appointed Minister of Foreign Affairs, had procured a safe conduct from the Prussians, and had gone out to see Count Bismarck and King William, who had their headquarters at Baron Rothschild's beautiful country-seat of Ferrières. His object was to obtain an armistice, that a national assembly might be convoked which would consider the terms of peace with the Prussians. The Chancellor of North Germany declared that he did not recognize the Committee of Defense, represented by Jules Favre, as a legitimate government of France competent to offer or to consider terms of peace. He treated M. Favre with the greatest haughtiness, utterly refusing any armistice, but at the close of their first interview he consented to see him again the next day. Quote, I was, says Jules Favre, at the Chateau de Ferrières by eleven a.m., but Count Bismarck did not leave the King's apartments before twelve. I then gathered from him the conditions that he demanded for an armistice. They were written in German, and he read them over to me. He desired to occupy, as a guarantee, Strasbourg, Toul, and Phalsbourg, and as I had the day before named Paris as the place for the meeting of the assembly, he wished in that case to have possession of some fort commanding the city. He named Fort Valerien. Here I interrupted him. You had better ask for Paris at once, I said. How can a French assembly be expected to deliberate when covered by your guns? I hardly know whether I dare to inform my government that you have made such a proposal. Tours was then named as a place for the assembly. But, said Bismarck, Strasbourg must be surrendered. It is about to fall into our hands. All I ask is that the garrison shall constitute themselves prisoners of war. At this I could restrain myself no longer. I sprang to my feet and said, Count Bismarck, you forget you are speaking to a Frenchman. 
to sacrifice an heroic garrison which has won our admiration and that of the whole world would be an act of cowardice nor will i even promise to mention that you ever made such a demand he answered that he had not meant to wound my feelings he was acting in conformity with the laws of war but he would see what the king said about the matter he returned in a quarter of an hour and said that his master accepted my proposal as to tours but insisted on the surrender of the garrison of strasbourg at this the negotiation was broken off jules favre concluding by saying that quote, the inhabitants of paris were resolved on making any sacrifices and that their heroism might change the current of events end of section twenty one